We open the Word of God up again to you this morning by looking at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Matthew 28. We have been in Matthew for several years. We are coming very quickly to the end. There will probably be one more sermon in Matthew. And it's been a wonderful journey as we've looked at the King the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we look at verses 11 through 15, let me grab your attention by thinking a little bit. Imagine if someone could say to the world today, especially some medical expert, that we have discovered a way to have life after death. Guaranteed. It's proven to be true. Undeniable verification. We have discovered the key to immortality. We have discovered a way to be resurrected from the dead. And we are going to start going through the graveyards and we're going to start raising everybody from the dead. Guaranteed power over the grave. Well, certainly if someone were to say that and could somehow prove it, because that's what everybody would say, prove it, and they could demonstrate someone that died and rose again, you would think that people would be clamoring to know more. How does this work? It would be mass hysteria. Where do I sign up? But indeed, dear friends, that is the gospel message. And look at the response. Rejection, scoffing, ridicule, granite indifference. The greatest event in the history of the world was the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the vast majority of the world refuses to believe it. There are many theories that are out there today. And probably the greatest theory that would somehow refute this incredible claim is that the disciples stole the body. But, of course, the majority of skeptics have never really studied the evidence. And many people who have studied the evidence still refuse to believe it, despite the overwhelming proof of the resurrection of Christ. In fact... Many people will say, well, you know, there are many other explanations about that whole resurrection thing. And I love when I hear that said, I love to say, oh, really, such as. And they begin to stammer and stutter around. By the way, it's the same type of thing. Well, you know, some people believe in the Bible, but it's filled with discrepancies and myths. Oh, really? Such as. And then you watch them begin to do the Nashville two-step. People believe, dear friends, what they want to believe. And no evidence to the contrary will dissuade them. And today's text is a perfect example of that very thing. There is no other event in the history of the world that has been so thoroughly scrutinized and proven to be true than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet still, people refuse to believe it. And of course, this raises another question. 
why are people this way? Not just towards the resurrection of Christ, but towards Christianity itself. People refuse to believe as God, believe that God is the creator. They refuse to believe that Christ was the son of God, that he died for our sins and rose again the third day. They refuse to believe that he's coming again in power and great glory and on it goes. But the answer can be seen in the events of this historical cover up concocted by the enemies of Christ to do to try and deny the resurrection of Christ. We're going to see an example of how people can refute the obvious. This will be a cover-up so easily disproven that it actually becomes further evidence proving the resurrection. Now, we're going to look at verses 11 through 15 this morning. Let me give you the context again. The angel now has appeared. There's been a great earthquake. The stone has rolled away. The women have come to the scene. So have Peter and John. And they have returned and they're all astounded. They see, they see the grave clothes there, but no body. And Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene. And we see that in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. And now we look at verses 11 through 15, where we will focus our attention this morning. Verse 11, now while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. I believe the Spirit of God would have us understand three primary concepts as we look at this text. There are several lessons that we can learn from this colossal cover-up. First, we will look at the divine apologetic that proves the resurrection. Secondly, I would have us examine the severity of Israel's apostasy. And thirdly, I would like for us to think about the depths of man's depravity that is so manifest in this text. First, we consider the divine apologetic that really proves the resurrection. Now, certainly God purposely ordained this crowning event in the life and the ministry of Jesus, his son, to be essential to saving faith. In other words, if you don't believe this, you cannot be a Christian. In Romans 10, verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And because the resurrection is so essential to the gospel, God also knew that Satan would do everything that he possibly could to somehow discredit it. The devil's deceptions always make perfect sense to 
those who love themselves more than God, people will believe anything other than the truth if it will support their agenda, whatever it may be. So knowing all of this, the Holy Spirit not only documented in the Gospels the the perfect righteousness of Christ and the staggering injustices that were perpetrated against him. But now in these five verses, he presents to us the most ingenious evidence to prove the veracity of the resurrection that anyone could possibly imagine. Because here he reveals to us the clandestine conspiracy contrived by his enemies, the religious elite of Israel. Now certainly had the defense of the resurrection come from his friends, from the disciples, people would have claimed foul. You guys are hopelessly biased in your own favor. You're trying to promote some great hoax to advance your agenda. But rather, in the omniscient genius of God, he carefully reveals this this surreptitious scheme of the Christ haters, a scheme that would in the long run give credibility to the resurrection, not detract from it. Now, let's examine the text. Beginning in verse 11, he says, now, while they were on their way, in other words, when the women uh, were on their way to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, uh, Jesus said, I'll meet you in Galilee and so on. Behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, I can imagine what the guards were thinking. They were thinking we are in serious trouble. The body is gone. Our lives are at stake. And so we see that some of them are going to go into the city. Some of the rest of them remained. It's hard to know how many there were. Some of them stayed at their post. And I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, you know, nobody's going to believe our story. So they come into the chief priest and they have to say, okay, let's tell you what happened here. First of all, there was this incredible earthquake. And it caused the stone to roll away and then... This angel came and reflected the, this, this blinding light and it scared us to death. And he sat upon this stone and that's all we can remember. And then later on we came to and we looked and the body was gone. Just grave clothes. And certainly the soldiers must have been thinking that the response from the chief priest was going to be, What have you guys been drinking? But they didn't say that. They believed them. And that's proven by the fact that there was no attempt to verify what the soldiers said. There was no intense questioning. Rather, they knew it was true. Certainly they had to have been horrified at the reality of it, but they immediately went into damage control. Now, had they not believed them, they would have put out a massive search for the body. They would have gone and told Pilate, let's let's get the soldiers. Let's make a sweep of the area. Let's dispatch thousands of soldiers. Let's put out a reward. We got to find this body. Let's find these disciples. They're the likely suspects that stole the body or whatever. Now, you would think that rather than doing all of that, they would have been horrified to the point where they said, my goodness, he was who he said he was. We thought that it was true. We've been denying it. We need to fall down on our face and worship him. But they didn't do that. 
And the reason why they didn't do that is they already knew all of that. I want to digress for a moment. You see, these people who were really representatives of apostate Israel were the eyewitnesses to his deity. These priests, these Pharisees, all of the leaders of Israel. They saw with their own eyes his supernatural power, yet they willfully chose to reject him. They knew of his miracles. They saw irrefutable demonstrations of the Holy Spirit who had empowered the God-man Jesus, the incarnate Christ, yet they refused to bow. Worse yet, they attributed his works to Satan. Can you imagine that? Such blasphemy is irremediable. It is, it, is, it is unforgivable. This is the wickedness of a calloused heart that has exchanged the truth for the lie. In fact, this was the basis of Jesus' damning accusation in Matthew twelve thirty one, where he said, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven, men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Now, you may remember when we study this, God forgives a whole range of sins, anything that man commits, even certain forms of blasphemy in a general sense. He will forgive that insolent language towards uh, God, uh, defiant irreverence. Uh, remember, Peter, we're told, blasphemed the Lord and he was forgiven. Uh, Paul was forgiven, even though he admitted in 1 Timothy 1, that he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But he was shown mercy, he says, because he acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And indeed, whenever we doubt God's goodness, his love, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, at some level we blaspheme him, yet sincere confession will bring about forgiveness. But that's different than blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's what was going on here with these men. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is rejecting Christ, having full knowledge of who He was, who He is. To consciously, deliberately choose to reject the Lord Jesus Christ in light of full revelation having complete understanding of his deity, having undeniable and irrefutable evidence of his glorious person. This is an unforgivable sin. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This was the heart of the warning found in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, where the writer tells us, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. You see, what more was Jesus supposed to have done? With full revelation, these men rejected the truth. With all that they knew about God's glorious deliverance of their ancestors and Jesus' miraculous work in their midst, and now the resurrection, yet they still remained in their Judaism, committed to their self righteous system of works righteousness, hypocrites to the very end. So we come back to the text and we see that this was the condition of the hard hearted blasphemers. 
rather than believe in the resurrection and all that that implied, which was validated by the soldier's testimony, what did they do? Well, verses 12 and 13 says that they assembled with the elders, counseled together. They gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, folks, this is laughable. Given the true condition of the disciples, (laughs) the disciples didn't steal the body. The disciples were cowering somewhere in some hidden room in Jerusalem. In fact, they didn't even fully believe in the resurrection. So why why in the world would they try to fabricate one? You see, all along, they were anticipating the Messianic kingdom. You will recall they were arguing over which one was going to be greatest in the kingdom. They weren't thinking of a death and a burial and a resurrection. They were too busy jockeying for position, as we would say. Later, in fact, when the women came to them and reported what had happened, we read in Luke 24:11 that when they heard their words, they, it says that it was nonsense and they would not believe them. So the propaganda the Jewish leaders had concocted had no basis in fact nor in probability. The disciples weren't thinking of a resurrection. And of course, this just gives further evidence to the veracity of the resurrection. Moreover, I have to laugh. The chief priest didn't say, or I should say other people didn't say to the soldiers, well, how do you know that the disciples came and stole away the body if you were asleep? Can you imagine going into a court of law and telling the judge that? Well, men, what happened here? Well, we, we were scared to death and we, were, we became unconscious and, 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 or even if they said we were asleep. And while we were asleep, the disciples came and stole the body. It's ludicrous. By the way, that's how sin is. Sin is irrational. When you see people doing crazy things and saying, you know, many times they say, I I don't understand what they're thinking. Don't try to understand it. That's sin. Sin is irrational. So out of fear that news of a resurrection would spread like a brush fire and thus threaten their power base, the cover up is set into motion. And this is not at all unlike modern politicians that find themselves in some kind of trouble and, and they desperately begin spinning certain events to protect their own political constituency. So they bribed the soldiers to lie, offering in return protection from Pilate. Verse 14 says, and if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Now, you want to remember that Pilate was afraid of further Jewish insurrection. He was afraid that the Jews would once again report him to Caesar. And he was certainly not going to cause any more trouble with them. He just wanted to get this whole Jesus mess behind him. He wanted to get it over with. So verse 15, it says that they took the money and did as they had been instructed. Now, of course, this was a great deal for the soldiers. I mean, imagine the turn of events here. At first, they're thinking, you know, our heads are going to roll for this deal. But not only are they now going to remain alive, but they're going to get paid. They're going to make money here. All they had to do was deny the truth. Sound familiar? You want to make money? All you need to do is deny the truth. 
The same scenario, dear friends, is played out every Sunday in thousands of pulpits all over the world. The enemy basically says, I'll make you wealthy, I'll give you money in exchange for compromise. If you will just spin the truth, just water it down. So in verse 15, it says this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And obviously, the Jews used the soldiers to ignite the brush fire of deception. And undoubtedly, they used other methods as well. They may have written things. They certainly spread the word among other people. They did everything possible to fan the flames of these lies. And Matthew says that they were doing that to this day. By the way, Matthew's gospel was written some 30 years after this event in A.D. 63. So what he was referring to here is now even 30 years later, this is still the story. And I might add that this is still the most popular explanation used today to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Especially in liberal, quote, Christian circles. The liberal Christians are really the modern day Pharisees. So God used their evil actions as a divine apologetic, as further evidence to confirm the resurrection. The great Puritan John Trapp of the 17th century underscored this this very thought when he said, and I quote, God would have the point of the resurrection well proved for our better settlement in so weighty a matter. The priests were unworthy to hear of it by an angel. They shall hear of it, therefore, by the profane soldiers who came into them much affrighted and thunderstruck. Now, the confession of an adversary is held in law to be the most certain demonstration of the truth that can be. The divine apologetic right here in the story of the great clandestine conspiracy, the cover-up. But I believe there is a second truth that is evident in this amazing and, quite frankly, ridiculous cover-up. And that is the severity of Israel's apostasy. Sadly, the great lengths to which these religious imposters went to deny the person and the work of Christ underscores the abyss of wickedness that was now their abode. The darkness that now covered their minds, their heart, all that they were. And I believe here God paints the final scene on the canvas of Israelite apostasy. Because these men were the representatives of Israel. And there can be no denial of the hardness of their hearts. Think of this. Jesus now conquered death. (laughs) He, He rose from the dead. And what was their response to deny it? To try to cover it up, to hush it. Here we see the severity, I believe, of Israel's apostasy. Apostasy that resulted in the divine judgment that is described in Romans 11.25, where the Apostle Paul speaks of a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Indeed, most Jews to this day remain under the sentence of God's judicial hardening 
due to their rejection of Christ. And I say most, certainly not all. There will always be a believing remnant, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6. There will always be the stump of the terebinth or the oak. There will always be a holy seed that will remain in the stump. But most of them are still blind to the reality of who Jesus was and who He is. And Paul went on to say that the hardening will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, until that final Gentile soul has been ele- that has been elected to salvation is saved in this church age, until that time, in other words, when that time comes to fruition, then there is going to be a period where this hardening will dissipate and the Jews will begin to understand the reality of who Christ is. And certainly as we read Scripture, we see that the fullness of the Gentiles will come to an end when God comes and snatches away His church in the rapture. And then He turns His attention once again to His covenantal people. That time of the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. And in Romans 11.26, Paul tells us then that all Israel will be saved. Dear friends, what a blessed hope for all who have been appointed to salvation those of Israel, those of the church. But there is a veil over their eyes because of their apostasy to this day, because of their astounding rejection of Jesus. In fact, Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 13. He says, We are not as Moses, who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, referring to the Jews. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, you may remember that Moses veiled himself in Exodus 34 to shield the Israelites when he came off the mountain, to shield them from the blinding light of the glory of God. He had been in the presence of God's glory and that blinding light was was refracting off of him, reflecting off of him. And so he covered himself. He had been in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God. And so the picture here that Paul is speaking of that is part of this whole basis of understanding Israel's current rejection of Christ is simply this. The glory of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, would fade in the face of the even more permanent glory of the new covenant of grace. That covenant of grace that was ratified by Jesus Christ through His death, that was affirmed by the Father through His resurrection, and that is appropriated by the Holy Spirit through our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. So, because of their arrogant commitment to establish their own self-righteousness, their own righteousness, through keeping the law, Paul says that a veil was put over their heart. And friends, this is a veil that can only be lifted when one turns to the Lord Jesus in saving faith. 
Only then can one see the depths of their sin. When we come to faith in Christ, it's at that point that the marvelous provisions of the gospel make sense to us and become the song of our heart and the theme of our thoughts. It's at that point that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. The veil is removed. And I would encourage anyone who does not believe in Christ and refuses to walk faithfully with Him that you need to turn to Him. You need to place your faith in Him. You need to trust in Him. And as you do so, that veil will be lifted. As you plead for undeserved mercy, you will begin to see the reality of Christ and you will become a new creation in Him. Well, this is precisely, by the way, what happened later in the life of that Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul, who became Paul. You remember when the blazing glory of God enveloped him on the road to Damascus? In Acts 22, he goes and God has him come to Ananias. And it says that the God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will. This is what Ananias said to him. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from His mouth. What a precious thought. God removed that veil through the power of His saving and sovereign grace. And that's why later on Paul would write, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But as we contemplate the severity of Israel's apostasy, it forces us also to think more closely about the issue of man's depravity. Think about this. Earlier, these religious leaders had mocked the Lord while He hung on the cross. In Matthew 27, verse 40, it says, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And now, dear friends, He has done something far more Supernatural. He has risen from the dead as he promised. So, what do you think the response would have been? One of repentance, one of belief. Scripture affirms that later on some of them did, but not here, not now. You see, friends, you must understand that no miracle alone, even in the time when the Lord was, was alive, ever softened a man's heart to overcome unbelief. It's only the power, the regenerating power of the Spirit of God that can somehow breathe life into the corpse of one who is spiritually dead. And people apart from Christ are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2.1 tells us. You see, you must understand that unbelief is a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. It's not a matter of understanding the facts, of, of just knowing the facts. It's a matter of believing them and embracing them with all of your heart and letting those truths become the power that drives your attitudes and your will. 
In fact, in Matthew 13, in Jesus' parable of the sower, you will recall that it was not the seed of the gospel that was the problem. Nor was it the sower of the seed that was the problem. The problem was the condition of the soil, symbolic of one's heart. You may recall, we studied this in the past, there are really four kinds of hearts that's described in that parable. I'll digress there for a moment. There was the impervious heart, the impressionable heart, the indifferent heart, and the impoverished heart, as I call them. The first heart was the impervious heart. He talks about the seed that was sown in the hard soil beside the road. This is the rock-hard soil of human deception. This would have been analogous to those chief priests, those, those religious apostate leaders. Their hearts were impervious to the truth. They would hear the gospel. They would see the truths of who Christ was. And it was met with granite indifference. It was utter nonsense to them. And we've all witnessed the people that way. You share the gospel to them and they look at you as if you've got three heads. They think it is utterly ridiculous. What was the problem? The seed? The sower? No, it's the soil. The second soil was the rocky, shallow topsoil. That was the type that was common in, in Israel. A little bit of topsoil, maybe an inch or two, and then beneath that a layer of limestone. This would be the, the impressionable heart. These are the, the types of people where the seed goes in and it immediately responds to the gospel very quickly. Great enthusiasm. It appears to grow very quickly. People pretend or, or look like they're growing in the faith and maybe pretend that they are without even realizing it. By the way, this accounts for the vast majority of people in modern evangelicalism. The, many times you hear, oh yeah, a thousand people came to Christ at this rally or whatever. There's a big difference though, people. It's a big difference between professing Christ and possessing Him. The problem there is that there's no real conviction of sin. They have never been deeply wounded by the law. There's no brokenness of heart. and They've never seen how they have offended a holy God. There's no pleading for undeserved mercy and grace. Just a shallow conversion. Typically driven by some emotional response to some watered down gospel message. And I believe that many of these people place their faith in the newly invented smiley face Jesus who desperately wants to give you success or a purpose driven life or whatever. But he's really powerless to do so unless you repeat some prayer or whatever. And then there was that third soil where the seed fell among the thorns, it says. That's the indifferent heart, as I would call it. The gospel seed falls upon this heart of a, of a would-be professor. But it's choked out. The thorns there symbolized four things. The text says the worry of the world, deceitfulness of riches, pleasures of this life, desires or lust for other things. In other words, here the gospel comes to a person and they're indifferent. They're apathetic. They're disinterested. They're, they're, they're unmoved. They're unresponsive to spiritual things. They can kind of take them or leave them. And I see this many times with people that are on the periphery of the church. They'll serve Christ, oh, if it's convenient. But quite frankly, that's a very low priority. Many other competing loyalties. But then there was that final soil, the good soil. 
that Jesus described, and I would call it the impoverished heart, one that is needy and broken and humble and contrite. It's exhausted. It's spiritually bankrupt. This is the man, Jesus said, who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Now, folks, again, there's an important lesson here. The, the sower sows the seed of the gospel, a seed that God created, even like physical seeds that we plant. We, we don't have to come along and somehow recreate them, nor can we even replicate them. And so the point is, don't tinker with the gospel seed. It's fine as it is. It's ridiculous to try and invent some hybrid gospel seed that will penetrate every soil, that will grow in every type of soil, that will bear fruit in everybody's life. Can you imagine someone making such a claim down at the local garden store? We've got a seed here that will grow right in concrete. We've got a seed here that will penetrate weeds. It'll eat up the weeds. You don't have to worry about it. Most ridiculous. And yet this is the prevailing mindset of contemporary evangelicalism. That somehow we must alter the seed. Friends, Jesus never altered his message to somehow make it less offensive. He, he didn't come to the religious leaders there at the end of his life and the Passion Week and say, Hey, look, let's back up here. I know a lot of you don't believe I'm the Son of God and, and, and the King of the Jews. And all. You know, let me just back off of that a little bit. I, I just want you to know, I just love all of you. I just want us to all get along. You know, I, I, I'd like to just take a few moments here and heal a few of you. I want you to know I want you to be successful. I know a lot of you are poor. I, I want to show you how you can get rich. I, I, I want to show you how you can become wealthy. I know a lot of you struggle with poor self-esteem. I, I just want you to know that, that I want to give you the esteem that you deserve. I, I want you to feel successful. I want you to learn how to think positively. You know, I certainly don't want to offend anybody. Hey, I'll tell you what. You, it's, people, come on, bring out, the, bring out the instruments. Let's have a party. Folks, Jesus never did do that. And yet, you see in contemporary evangelicalism a commitment to somehow reinvent Christianity, reinvent the gospel, to fashion Christianity, especially the worship services and the churches, in a way that makes believers feel comfortable but never convicted. That's the problem. And see, the assumption is that anyone will respond to the truth if it is just presented properly. Oh, really? What more was Jesus supposed to have done? I mean, folks, he rose from the dead. Now, let's top that one and look at the response. Dear friends, we must understand that man is utterly unable to embrace spiritual truth savingly on his own. Again, look at the response of the religious elite of Israel. Not even the resurrection from the dead changed their heart. Why? Because they are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2. Because unbelievers love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil, John 3.19. 
Because, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds, that's referring to Satan, blinding the minds or a person's ability to reason, blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And, of course, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because he is spiritually appraised. He has no capacity to grasp the truth and apply it to his heart and live consistently with it. He cannot do it on his own. And yet, sadly, thousands of churches are constantly trying to reinvent ministry to reach the lost, to create some hybrid gospel seed. I was talking with some folks the other day who were describing a new church in the area. And in talking with one of the pastors, he said, yeah, we're really trying to reach young people and we're trying to reach the, as he said, the unchurched, and frankly, those people who hate church. Okay? And as he talked, it was obvious that they see people in the world that need Christ as consumers. And so, if they're consumers, we want to give them what they want. And so, what do they want? How do you know what they want? Well, you take opinion polls. You do survey groups. You solicit marketing firms, as they had done, to create a marketing analysis, a marketing plan. And you know the rest of the story. You see this all over the place. What do the people want? What do the unsaved want? Well, they want rock, a kind of basically a rock concert, loud music. They want to be entertained. They want to wear whatever they want to wear. No restrictions there. They want coffee. They want something to eat, kind of a coffee house atmosphere. They want humor. They want uh, basically um, little stories. I would call them superficial little spiritual anecdotes. That would be the most that they would want. Certainly no doctrine, no Bible teaching, no exposition of the text. And they want to make sure that, that they jettison anything that smacks of historical Orthodox Christianity. We don't want any of that stuff. We want a party atmosphere. Of course, it reminds me of what Paul said would happen in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 3. They will not endure sound doctrine. That day is coming, and I believe that day is here. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they, the text says, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Later on, it says they're going to turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. By the way, Paul called this in 2 Corinthians 4 too, walking in craftiness and adulterating the Word of God. Craftiness, by the way, is an interesting word in the original language. It refers to trickery or deception, deceit. And he was basically saying this is what the charlatans were doing back at Corinth. By the way, this new stuff that we see today, this isn't new. It's just the same old stuff repackaged. That's what they were doing back then. You see, what Paul was saying is the gospel was merely a product that they were trying to sell. And so what you try to do is package that project product in a way that you can get the consumer to buy it. Because after all, that's how you make money off of it. In 2 Corinthians 2.17, he accused the charlatans of peddling the word of God. 
And so again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, that they were adulterating the word of God, uh, adulterating the law in the original language. It was a term that was used to, des- to describe uh, mixing inferior ingredients into something like gold or like wine or whatever. We see that in some of the extra biblical Greek literature. It's corrupting something or contaminating something with an inferior ingredient. That's what they were doing to the gospel. Folks, that's what's happening today. The gospel itself is not good enough because it's too, inf- it's too offensive. But beloved, again, there is nothing wrong with the seed of the gospel. Paul said that, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There's no, there's no need to somehow reinvent some special method of sowing the seed so that it will be guaranteed to germinate. You see, evangelists, as you and I would be, never need to alter the seed. What we have to do is prepare the soil. That's what we do. We prepare the soil. And you let the Spirit of God cause that seed to penetrate where it will. And He will cause it to germinate. And you must understand that the soil of men's hearts must be broken up by the plow of conviction, the conviction of sin. The subsoil of the soul must feel the anguish of impending judgment. And somehow the blades of the law must get down deep and begin to to tear up the hard ground of self-righteousness and pride and unbelief. And sinners must be made to understand that the weeds that are in their life have to be thoroughly burned. And the thorns of iniquity must be uprooted. The rocks of pride must be pulverized or they must be removed. And then that will leave the soft, fallow ground of humility. That's what we do in preaching. That's what we do in living out the gospel. We prepare the hearts of people. And frankly, gospel preaching that only scratches the surface of of the ground, of the hard ground, will never prepare a heart to receive the seed of grace. It will never happen. It will cause a lot of people to get excited and, oh, yeah, let's follow Jesus. Where do I sign up for this? But it will never produce the fruits of holiness. It's so sad to think of so many people who think they are saved, but they're not. Those who will someday, as Jesus said, will say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these religious things? But he'll say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. You see, a man can never be saved from sin until he is first convinced, yea, horrified of his sin. And that's at the very heart of the gospel. You see, the conscience must be disturbed by the power of the Spirit, Paul says, through the foolishness of preaching. And now I ask you, once again, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead could not cause men to believe, how on earth do you expect some seeker-sensitive carnival contrived by a marketing firm to do that very thing? It's ridiculous. Beloved, no one has ever come to salvation because of human ingenuity or human persuasion. Salvation is a sovereign act of a holy God. Only He can break through the impenetrable hardness of a heart. 
And what the Holy Spirit does is He uses His Word as an instrument to salvation. So what must we do? We must proclaim the Word with clarity. I want people to understand very clearly what they're choosing to reject. We must proclaim it with boldness and we must proclaim it with love. And allow the Word of God by the power of the Spirit to activate the conscience. That's why Paul's preaching was admittedly offensive. He said that it alienated most people. 1 Corinthians 1.23 It was to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Well, dear friends, with great confidence, therefore, we preach the unadulterated Word of God. No tricks, no gimmicks, no Elvis impersonators, no power teams, no karate demonstrations, no, I don't know, Hollywood actors who supposedly have come to Christ is going to tell you how everything's turned them around. You know, the Lord never did any of that. I rejoice knowing that faith comes from hearing, and hearing by what? By the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So rest assured, my friends, that God in His sovereign grace will cause the gospel seed to germinate even in the hardest heart of those that He has chosen to be saved. And you know what's great? This is exactly what happened to many of these chief priests and leaders of Israel who had concocted this scheme. Do you realize that? Later on, somehow the seed got in there by the power of God. That's why we can rejoice in the power of saving grace as we read Acts 6-7. Here's what it said, And the word of God kept on spreading. In other words, after all of this, the word of God kept on spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Now catch this. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, how in the world did that happen? By the power of the Spirit of God. So, friends, don't give up on your loved ones. Don't give up on your neighbors. You keep praying for them. You keep living the life. And you keep unleashing the gospel on them. Write them cards. Send them letters. Look for opportunities to plant a little seed in the middle of a conversation. You don't have to come up with some great gimmick. We don't have to come up with some great gimmick here at the church to somehow get people to believe. That's God's deal. Certainly we do everything we can to be winsome. And we present the truth with clarity, with boldness, with love, as I've said. But we relax in the great sovereignty of God and watch what He does as He penetrates the heart's that are utterly dead and blind and veiled because of their unbelief. We're going to see that happen with many people even before we die. And certainly someday even the hard-hearted Israelis are going to see that. And you know with everything that's going on, as we see the drum roll begin to roll and the curtains get ready to be moved away from the stage of the final days of, of history. It's so comforting for me to know, and many times I think about this when I look at those Israelis, that if the Lord were to come today and the great tribulation begin to, to occur over the next several years, it's so comforting to know 
that many of those people, certainly not all of them, many of them will die during the tribulation, but many of them will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. And they'll be able to sing with us, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O Worship the King. Isn't that a wonderful thought? And so I pray that that will bring comfort to your hearts even as we look at this colossal cover-up of the resurrection to see that God even used that to prove its very veracity. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for the truth of the Gospel that penetrated my heart as hard as it was. Lord, I confess as so many others in this room and around the world that we can offer nothing when it comes to our salvation. We confess that we cannot share in its glory. It's been all of grace. We thank You, Lord, for Your mercy in our life. We praise You for it. And I pray, Lord, that You will once again bring great and overwhelming conviction to perhaps someone that might be in this room today. There's so many, Lord, that play church, that play Christianity. And down deep they have to admit that they really have no secret devotion to You. They have really no love for You. You are not the passion of their life. They have no longing for Your Word. There's nothing in their life that would really validate the genuineness of their faith. They're not bearing any fruit. Lord, I pray that You will convict them of their need to to get serious about their walk with You if they are indeed saved. But Lord, for most of them, they're not. I pray that they will examine themselves to see if indeed they are in the faith. And I pray that You will be merciful to them and that You will cause them to see through their hypocrisy and cause them to bow their knee to the living Savior and confess Him as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. For it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.